between the ages of four to eight, you're excused to kids club. <laughs> we can only all have that vigorous second hour. We are now entering into the fourth week of a five-week series that we have entitled The Cornerstone, considering that Jesus Christ is the only solid foundation that we can have for our lives. He's, oh, he let him down. <laughs> Sorry, I just lost it. <laughs> Jesus Christ is the only solid foundation for our lives. That Jesus Christ is the only hope that we could have that would fulfill And that Jesus alone is the only place where we could find deliverance, protection, or security, as we saw last week in Psalm 91. So we have walked into this series purposefully, knowing that as we enter into this fall, into this season, we are approaching a major political election that no one seems to have a peace about, and that if our country is not enough to worry about, and we have countries like Russia, China, North Korea, and Syria all adding to world tensions. And even with all the world events going on, that doesn't even come close to taking into account the personal challenges and the difficulties that many of us are facing that shake our foundation, that challenge our hope, that make us feel insecure or wonder if we can make it. And so we want to lean into God's Word. And we want to assert that Jesus is completely sufficient in any and in every circumstance. And while voting is important, the winner of the coming election should not solidify our foundation. It should not offer us more hope or even grant us security, for He alone is sufficient. That even though events of the world, peace in the world, should not solidify us, grant us hope, or make us more secure. Neither should our place of employment, our GPA, or relationship status. Jesus is our foundation, our hope, and our security. Our sufficiency as believers in Jesus Christ is completely established in His completed work at the cross. His resurrection from the dead, done on our behalf that we might have life, and way more than that, That we would have an unshakable foundation built upon Jesus. That we'd have a living hope built upon Jesus. That we'd have an eternal security built upon Jesus. And all of this comes from His Word. Psalm 118, 22 and 23, I told you we'd be here every week, says this, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes projected for us in the Old Testament, that He would be our cornerstone. And in Acts 4, Peter clarifies that for us. Acts 4, 11 and 12. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. For there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men's by which we must be saved. And Peter clarifies to the very people who would reject Jesus, clarifying for us that the world will reject Jesus, and yet He's the only solid foundation. He's the cornerstone. And so we continue to build upon that. Peter writes again in 
1 Peter 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy, caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We just sang that, did we not? That He is alive forever and ever and ever. He will be glorified. We have a living hope and the only hope that can fulfill. And Psalm 91 states in verse 14 through 16, because He holds fast to me in love, I will deliver Him. I will protect Him because He knows my name. When He calls to me, I will answer Him. I will be with Him in trouble I will rescue him and honor him, and with long life I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. He is our deliverance, our protection, our answerer, our rescuer, our honorer, our satisfaction, and our salvation. Now we keep repeating this and building on it every week. One, because it's true. And two, because repetition is helpful for reminding you of the truth. That we would soak ourselves in it. Because we are called not just to believe in Jesus, but to trust in Him. To abide in Him. To dwell with Him. And to find ourselves in Him. As I built out this series, it's been my prayer for all of us that we would see Jesus not only for who He was in the Bible, but for who He is in our lives. That we'd find Him in His fullness to be our foundation. That we'd find Him in our fullness and in His fullness to be our only hope and in His fullness to be our only security for He is enough. And this week as we continue to build in this series Christ is our strength. The strength that we will need to make it through the day. The strength that we will need to endure difficulties and challenges. And the strength that we will need to pick up our cross and carry it daily. As we step into that this morning, if you would turn with me in the Old Testament, I conveniently have placed, I didn't do it, Red Pew Bibles in front of you. I'd encourage you to grab one. We're going to move around a little bit as we normally do. We have conveniently put the page numbers up for you so that you know where we're at. We're on page 206 as we turn into Judges 7 this morning. And as we do that, I want to give you some background information if you're not familiar with the book of Judges. I'll start at the beginning. The book of Genesis, you find creation, and it takes you from creation all the way through Joseph. There's a lot of history in there. I'll spare it to you. It'll take me longer than the time I've got to give it to it. And at the end of the book of Genesis, you find Joseph relocating his family to Egypt because they're hungry and looking for food. And in the book of Exodus, Joseph's family has grown. You may remember that when Joseph got there, God had made promises, I will grow your family. And in the first couple chapters, chapter or so of Exodus, God has been faithful to Abraham, the promise he made to Abraham, carried through Joseph. And they've got like two and a half, three million Jews living in Egypt. God was faithful. And because they've grown, the Egyptians have enslaved them. Because they're enslaved, God raises up Moses to deliver them and calls them to enter in the promised land. And leadership of Israel is passed from Moses to Joshua. 
And Joshua leads the Israelites to cross the Jordan River and to claim that all has God that has promised them, and yet they're not completely faithful to God. And at the end of the book of Joshua, you find Joshua's death, and that leads us into the book of Judges. And if you're not familiar with the book of Judges, over and over again you get these themes. It says, and Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. There's this pattern where God's people would be renewed, they'd be restored, they'd get excited about him, and then they'd return back to sin. They'd return back to evil, and then they would beg God to do something. God would raise up a nation, and in this case, the Midianites. And the Midianites would be used by God to inflict slavery on his people, just like they were in Egypt. You would find even now, you pursue sin, sin will make you a slave. It's the same thing that happens in the Old Testament. So as they became slaves, the people would cry out and God would raise up a judge. And the judge was a military political figure who would call them out of bondage. People would be freed and they'd return to the Lord and everything would go great until the judge died. And the very next verse in the book of Judges, it would say, now Israel did of the Lord and they turned back to sin again. And this pattern repeats over and over and over again. So in Judges 6, God raises up Gideon. It's, I think, the third or the fourth one in the pattern. God raises up Gideon to serve as a judge, this time to free the people from the oppression of the Midianites. And as the pattern, the nation of Israel has fallen into sin, given over to slavery. They've begged for deliverance. And now you have Gideon in chapter 7, verse 1 says, then Jeroboam, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod. And the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Morah in the valley. What's happening at the beginning of chapter 7 is God has raised up Gideon to lead the Israelite army against the Midianites to free them. And as they set their path, the army of the Midianites is just north of them. Now, if you were an army general like Gideon at this point, though he has zero qualifications to be an army general, you might want to know what's coming against you. And if we were to sneak ahead in the Bible, we have no indication that he would have as much as we will. But according to chapter 8, verse 10, you'd find that the Midianite army was about 135,000 people strong. Now, I think Gideon had some concept for that. Whether he knew there were 135,000 or not, I don't know. But I think he understood that they were dramatically outnumbered. So, you have to ask yourself this question. If you were being called to lead a fight against 135,000 people, and you had maybe 32,000, what would you do to prepare for a fight? Let's see what God says. Verse 2. The Lord says to Gideon, The people with you are too give the Midianites into their hand. Let Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now therefore, proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 people of the 
returned and 10,000 remained. Now pay attention to that. 32,000 going against an army of 135,000. 32,000 show up and God says, this is way too many for you to have a victory. So let's say, if anyone's afraid, let them go home. And 22,000 people leave, 10,000 remain, and pay attention to verse 2. Lest Israel boast over me. See, it seems to be that we like to take credit for what God does, so God likes to put us in situations and circumstances so we can't take credit. And that's kind of what he's doing here. So let's pause for a quick New Testament timeout. Is this language familiar in the New Testament? Absolutely it is. In fact, you find it in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, when Paul writes, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. What Paul writes through the hand of What Paul writes through his own hand is that you have been saved by grace, by grace alone, that Jesus Christ died on your behalf for your sin, and by grace you have been saved. You did nothing to merit it. You did nothing to earn it. It was grace. Why? So that not one of you could take credit for it. So that none of us could line up and say, yeah, well, I'm really good. God says it doesn't count. Well, you, you should see the good things I've done in my life. God would say it doesn't count. It's by grace that we've been saved, lest we boast about being able to add what God has done for us on our behalf through his son. Which begs the question, why do we always take credit for everything? Why? All right, time in. We're back into the Old Testament. The 22,000 have been removed so that Israel could not claim to be strong enough to save themselves. It's a fascinating story. And what God wanted in this moment is that it be incredibly clear that it was the Lord's strength that would carry them through the day, not their own. So now you have 10,000 going to oppose 135,000. And with this new and improved weaker army, let's see what happens. Verse And the Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. Take them down to the water and I will test them for you there. And any of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, shall go with you. And any of whom I shall say to you, this one shall not go with you, shall not go. And what the Lord says is, hey, let's go down to the water. I'm going to show you the test. Whatever the test is, if it, however it works out, take the ones I show you. And don't take anyone else. He desires to lessen the army again, verse 5. So he brought the people down to the water. And the Lord said to Gideon, this is a great story by the way, everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink, and the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouths, was 300. But all of the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. We had 32,000. 22,000 left. We had 10,000. 
10,000 people go to the river to drink. 9,700 of them are now leaving. 300 are going to fight. And it's not like Gideon's done this before. It's not like he's an experienced general. It's not like he's a lean, mean fighting machine that likes to only go in with a couple. You'd want numbers on your side, wouldn't you? And it's fascinating because this follows Gideon already testing God with a fleece three times. And now you see God diminishing this army and diminishing this army and diminishing this army. And in verse 7, the Lord says to Gideon, With the 300 men who lacked, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand. And let all the others go, every man to his home. So the people took provisions into their hands and their trumpets, and he sent all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, but retained the 300. And the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. God reduces the army all the way down to 300. And by the way, you follow the story, you find that they were absolutely victorious. And in fact, they were undefeated. If you press on into chapter 8, verse 4, it would actually testify that all 300 came back. Oh, they were tired. They were outnumbered like a thousand to one. They ought to be. They were tired, but they were still in pursuit. They were still looking for a fight. Look, what God is doing here is he's calling Gideon to lead his army to overtake the Midianites so that his people might be free. And yet he wanted to make sure that it was clear to them that it was his work and his power that was freeing them and not their own. This is the Lord. And this same theme, by the way, happens over and over and over again in the Old Testament. You can trace it all over the place. My favorite is in the book of Joshua. If you were to look at that story even quickly, you'd find Joshua leads the Israelites over the Jordan River. And the first city they're going to come to is Jericho. We need to wage war against Jericho. So what's the first plan of action? And don't miss this part. God calls them. God's first call to prepare them for is, hey, Joshua, first thing we need to do, let's circumcise all the men. Like, isn't that a great battle plan? Let's get all the guys and circumcise them. If you don't understand circumcision, ask your mom. It's not pretty. I was nearby when it happened to my son, and I didn't want to be. I saw the uh, work. God has a unique battle plan, and don't forget this is all before they get to the second part of the battle plan, which is walk around the city seven times, yelling and blowing a horn. God is interested in us trusting ourselves into Him. He's interested in us leaning into His power, His strength, and letting Him do the work, letting Him carry us. And not doing it on our own. We're involved. We're always involved. But more often than not, our involvement is trusting Him. It's trusting Him. So we've got to lean into this. And let's point out two quick things before we move on. 
First, is that the Lord is clearly willing to call us into places and seasons where the only thing that we can depend on is Him. Which is to say that the Lord will absolutely give you more than you can handle. Depend on it. Count on it. God will put more in your life than you can handle. There's too much evidence in the Bible to say otherwise. And I'm pretty confident that if we got to go ask these 300 as they watched the others walk away, that it was far more than they could handle. They had to be terrified, and yet it was God who had the plan. It was God who was going to take care of them, and it was God who desired to display His sovereignty and His strength for them to lean on. And speaking of strength, please don't miss the fact Don't underestimate the reality that the Lord used 300 to overcome 135,000. He's strong enough. On any and every day, He is strong enough. They couldn't claim the victory on their own, only through Him. Paul, the great champion of the faith, writes about this several times in his writings writing about his weaknesses, writing about the Lord's strengths. In 1 Corinthians 15.10, he writes this. By the way, 1 Corinthians 15 is a phenomenal chapter. Probably my favorite chapter in the Bible. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. He's testifying to his work. Though, not, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. In a situation in which he was at work, he was hard at work. He's considering the hardness at which he worked. And what Paul says simply in this verse, you break it down, is that if I survive any situation, if I survive any circumstance or test or accomplishment or any work, that it is grace and decisively grace that gets the work done, and not me. It is decisively the Lord, and not me. That it's Christ at work. It's Christ's victory. It's Christ's strength. And perhaps this is clearer than in 2 Corinthians 12, when he writes in verse 7, so to keep from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, A thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being conceited. Paul is writing, has had an incredible gospel testimony, and writes basically to keep me from being conceited for all that I've walked through, for all that I've been through, for everything God has done in my life, for every time I've had to step into him to trust him, you'd think that would be enough, right? Paul testifies here, In the Bible, that God gave him a thorn in the flesh to thwart him, something that would cause him pain and irritation, something that would cause him and keep him from being conceited, to keep him humble. He gave him a thorn in the flesh. 
Yesterday I was at work in my garage building shelves and thinking about this passage, I got a splinter in my hand. Now it's itty bitty, it's small, it is by no means a thorn in my flesh, but it does hurt every time I pick up something with my right hand. And I'm reminded of my own weakness, for I'm a pansy and couldn't get it out by myself last night. And I'm a pansy and I couldn't get it out by myself this morning. I will trust the Lord, I think, to get it out of my hand. But we are reminded of our weakness and his strength. Paul says, a thorn was given to me in the flesh. By the way, we don't know what that is. And we're not supposed to know what that is. But let me say two things about it. I've heard people say from time to time, well, I think it's probably lust or a struggle with temptation. No, clearly not. We can find enough Bible passages to point you to to say that's not true. What Paul struggled with was some kind of physical ailment. Some say he had stomach issues. Some say he had eyesight issues. Whatever it was, he had to depend on others to carry him. He struggled, and yet God wanted to keep him, a great man of our faith, trusting in him and trusting in his strength so even in the new testament we find that god is willing to give us situations and circumstances to call us to trust him alone to trust in his strength alone so that it should be evident and obvious in our lives that our foundations are not holding our hopes are not fulfilling, our security is not holding, and our strength is giving in. God walks us through things so that it's evident that His strength and His strength alone is enough. And in verse 8, Paul writes, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. Paul puts out begging God On three occasions, God, please take this away. I could be more effective. I could be more efficient. Three times, Paul pleads with the Lord. And God leaves it. Why? Because he didn't want Paul moving in his strength. He did not want Paul moving in his security, in his talent, on his own. He wanted Paul trusting him. And in verse 9, the Lord says, He said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Jesus says, My grace is enough, that what I've done for you is sufficient for my power, my strength, My ability to carry you, my ability to provide for you, is made perfect in your weakness. That when we stop and say, I can't do it on my own, I can't even put another foot forward, that's the opportunity where God meets us and says, trust me, I've got it all. This is where I've been moving you towards. That you would look to me and look to me alone in our weakness is when his sufficiency 
is made plain. It's when his strength is most evident. When I am weak, I turn to him, look to him, and he carries us. His strength is enough. Continues in verse 9 to say, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with my weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul says my strength is not found in my situations or my circumstances. My foundation is not in my situations or my circumstances. My hope is not in any of these things. It is Jesus. One of the more striking things I've observed on Facebook, the great social media, whatever it is, of our time, is in the last week or so, my wife's cousin started posting her testimony. And I thought, that's kind of bold. You share your testimony on Facebook. All right. But she didn't just share her testimony. She went deep and got weak and shared for a 10-minute period about an abortion that she'd had. That you, as a conservative Christian, get yourself, talk about that. And she talked all about the brokenness of her heart, how God had worked her, redeemed her, walked her through it. Golly, was his strength affected in her weakness. It was an incredible testimony. I wrote her encouraging. God, that's incredible. Rachel, I can't believe you'd be willing to share that. And she wrote back talking about all these people who were writing back to her, telling her their stories and their, their own pain. And she's reveling in how God is working through this. It wasn't her testimony of how awesome she is or how many rules she's followed, but her testimony of how she has struggled, fallen flat on her face, and how God picked her up, put her back together, and is carrying her. That's what God is using in her life. That's strength perfected in weakness. That's testifying into the sufficiency of Christ. Last week we pointed to Philippians 4. We'll point there again this week. In Philippians 4, 12 and 13, Paul writes, I know how to be brought low and how to abound. In any and in every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Keeping in fact, because I have to say this every time, watch the uh, situation that's going here. Pay attention to the context. What Paul says here is, I can endure every situation and circumstance. Look at verse 12. He doesn't say I can pick up heavy things. Doesn't say I can score touchdowns for Jesus. Doesn't say God's amazing and awesome, therefore I can do anything I want. No, Paul says I can endure everything in any and every circumstance. Gives you pictures of his highs and his lows to testify to the all-powerful sufficiency of Jesus to carry him in any and every situation, for God's strength is enough all the time. That's his point. Friends, the Bible would make plain to us Old Testament and New. 
that we are not called merely to believe in Jesus, for the demons do that in the New Testament. We are called to trust Jesus. That we would trust Him with our lives. That we'd look to Him above anything. And that He could be our unshakable foundation that like Job, when anything happens and shakes and gets taken away from us, oh, it's going to hurt, but we're still secure in Jesus. And that He is our hope in a way that the world's going to put before us thoughts and plans and dreams, and yet His hope is the only one that will fulfill His protection is the only thing that will carry us. And His strength will be what we need for any and every situation. We cannot buy into it that it's ours. I want to close in Isaiah 41. Verse 10. Fear not, for I am with you, declares the Lord. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, I will help you, I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. When we trust in Him with our everything, regardless of our situations and our circumstances, it gives us the ability to testify to the world about who He is, and what he's doing and what he's done. So that people from the outside could look at us and say, hey, how do you walk through that? And we could say, Jesus. And that we could walk through all kinds of challenging situations and circumstances that the outside world would never get. And say, hey, how did you endure that? And our answer would be, Jesus. Friends, this is distinction of the new testament church as we are supposed to be we talk about this from time to time we are a very diverse group of people full of various backgrounds full of various nationalities and that people would see us and the only reason we'd get along is jesus we want people driving by on sunday morning and looking going wait a second why are they meeting together happily Answer, Jesus. Because we gather together to say he's our only hope. He's our only strength. He's our only foundation. He's our only protection. That's why we gather to be built up in him together. To declare to the world that he alone is sufficient. And that everything else will fail us. Let me pray. Oh, great God in heaven, we thank you for your word. We cling to it. Father, we thank you that you are abundantly gracious to us. Father, we thank you that in your son's death and in his resurrection is the hope of our life. Father, it's not in my ability to do good things, good works, good deeds, or anything. Father, I'd boast about it if it was about any of those things. But Father, let us trust you. Let us find our hope in you, our strength in you. So Father, that as you call any of us 
out into hard places that you would be our only strength, our only hope. And Father, that as you do that, we'd be able to testify to others about how you're carrying us and how you're walking us through. Father, for you are strong enough and you're sufficient enough in any and every circumstance to carry us even when we're desperate. God, thank you so much for the abundant grace shown to us through your Son, Jesus, that not only forgives us of our sin, though that is magnanimous, not only gives us life, but that is glorious. You give us, you give us hope and you give us strength. Praise God. Amen.